0: Lord, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. Lord, you're the one who's worthy of our worship and worthy of our affection. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are always at work, always at work in our lives personally, in our midst, all around us. And, Lord, would you give us the grace to see what you're up to, even in the midst of distractions and noise and all that comes with a life of busyness. May this be a holy moment even now as we turn to your word, Lord. I pray that you would come and you'd accomplish through the power of your Holy Spirit everything that you desire, nothing more and nothing less. Lord, may... The truth of your scripture bear fruit, a glorious harvest for your glory, we pray. And we come willing, we come in adoration, and awe, and we come ready to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're coming late, grab your Bibles with enthusiasm, with readiness, with purpose. And before you automatically flick to 1 Peter, as if you've been around, who's already there? Who's already in 1 Peter? We're actually going to go to Psalm 24 this morning. Just that i keep you on your toes. But we have been in a sermon series in 1 Peter, and I intend to continue that series. Peter, of course, talking about True Grace, and he 's painted this incredible picture, and we just have this Sunday before we launch into missions Month, so i didn 't want to launch into the next flow of peter 's thought, and he 'll continue, as we 'll see in future weeks. He talks about this grace, this true grace, not that we get, but that gets a hold of us. and that grace fuels this life of radical love, a life of radical worship, and a life of radical mission. so that 's where he 'll continue. But for this morning. I feel to just continue with the place that we finished the, uh, the end of last week's service. And there was a sense of just standing back, which I think we need to do often in our lives, to just reflect upon, to behold, to bask in the glory of our God. The glory of our God. And I woke up last Sunday before church. I was seeking the Lord. And I particularly had Psalm 24 on my heart. That was the psalm that he really placed before me and this week I've just been meditating upon it been pondering it and I feel there's a couple of things in here for us. So if you want a a sermon title for this message I've simply called it A Psalm in Season. A Psalm in Season. So let's read Psalm 24. It's a psalm I'm sure that most of you would be familiar with. A Psalm of David And then there's three aspects of this in particular that I'd like to bring our attention to. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's not many better places to begin than that, is there? The world, those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas. He's established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Sailor. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Amen to that. Wonderful psalm, isn't it? And there's some debate as to exactly what David was seeing as he penned this psalm. Some commentators suggest that perhaps this was referring to the moment when David brought back the Ark of the Covenant, which of course represents the presence and the glory of God under the Old Covenant, and he brought that back into the streets of Jerusalem. Other commentators suggest that perhaps this was referring to the triumphal entry, which would come some centuries Later, as Christ himself rode upon the donkey and was proclaimed to be, Hosanna, Hosanna, they said. Glory to God. Proclaimed to be the Savior. Neither of those pictures quite capture, I believe, what Psalm 24 is saying and suggesting to us. And I would suggest that this is a picture of God's heart for his people. Now, perhaps it applied to those two moments. Perhaps it applied to many other moments. But I do believe there is an application for us today. We see just in the psalm itself, there's three sections. In fact, some scholars have suggested that this could be three psalms that were compiled together. That particular theory doesn't hold much weight because they are certainly related. But it begins in this place of recognition. You could even say revelation of an understanding. This moment where the author David is just recognizing who God is. He is God. In the beginning, God. What a wonderful place to begin anything with. It then moves from this place of recognizing or revealing who God is to this place of reverence. There's this picture of, as David cries out, he says, well, who who could ever come into the presence of God? Who could ascend his hill? Who could ever stand in his holiness? But he continues and says, there is a generation. Not just a person, but there's a generation with clean hands and pure heart. He calls them the generation of Jacob who will seek after God. And there's that sense of reverence, of awe and wonder of holding him in high regard, but of pursuing and seeking after him, of responding to the revelation with seeking hearts. And then in response to the seeking hearts, we then see this picture of the King of Glory coming. It's like the people respond to the revelation, and then God responds to the people who are seeking after God. It's one of the most wonderful proclamations, the King of Glory. And in fact, the ESV slightly distorts the meaning. It says, lift up, be lifted up, that the King of Glory may come in. And really the literal translation is lift up, be lifted up, for the King of Glory is coming in. There's the picture there. It's like the city walls, the gates thinking of the context of this particular passage and the glorious procession of the King of glory. It's coming. So the picture is not, well, let's get ready because maybe, hopefully, he might come. It's like, no, he's coming. He is on his way. So lift up the gates, lift up your heads and see and receive. And for us, you know, if we, if we knew the King was coming, we don't have a king as such of our nation. But if you knew, if you knew the King, if you knew the Prime Minister, if you knew... Any person of prominence who was coming to visit you, coming to visit us as we gathered to worship, there'd be a sense of preparation, wouldn't there? Like, we've got to be ready. We've got to get ready to receive the King. There'd be a sense of anticipation. And there'd be a sense of celebration. The King, he's coming. He's coming. And it's almost that, there's that sense of excitement as you read through this proclamation of God's response. Lift up your head, the King's coming. Who? Who? It's almost like the guy on the gate, he's like, the king's coming. And everyone else is like, who, who is this king? So it's the king of glory, the king who's strong, He's he's coming. I can see your excitement, excitement. So let's look at these three aspects, these three sections of this psalm. And as I said, I feel like this is a psalm in season because I do feel like there's an invitation, even... Yesterday, I don't know how many people managed to get along to the day, National Day of Prayer and Fasting. That One of us, okay, good. I'm sure the rest of us were praying separately and fasting and seeking the Lord. But the focus was really, well, revival, was seeing God do something in our land and in our nation. I mean, isn't that our desire? Isn't that our desire that the King of Glory would come in? That's my desire. So what does that look like? How do we get there? Because I feel like this is more than just a good psalm. It's an invitation. So here is the invitation. First of all, it's to this place of recognition. Remembering it's recognition, it's reverence, and it's God's response. There's those three aspects. So number one, if you're taking notes, let's look at this place of recognition. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, those who dwell therein, Why? Why is it his? Because he created it. It's his story from cover to cover. This is the story of the glory of God. It's his story. It's his story. It finishes with, behold, I'm coming quickly. Isn't that a wonderful promise and invitation and command to to stand with readiness? It is his story from Genesis to Revelation. It's his purpose. It's been done through his power for his pleasure and that is a place that we constantly need to camp at i was reflecting upon this this past week i had a uh, an appointment with a guy who often we catch up and i spend a lot of time catching up with people in coffee shops nothing wrong with coffee shops but it's not always beneficial to my wallet or my waistline because you get a coffee and then you think oh bacon and egg roll and it spirals out of control So rather than do a coffee shop, I said, let's go for a ride. I knew he was into mountain biking. And I haven't been for a mountain biking ride for some time, years, I think, since before I was quite ill and um, wasn't in any shape to attempt a mountain bike ride. So my fitness is not there, but the competitive spirit is. So we launched off, as my wife and I often laugh. we, We laugh about how competitive I can be. But I always laugh louder, is what I tell her. I always laugh louder. So we launched off on this ride and we thought we were doing reasonably well until all of a sudden there were these two particularly fit-looking ladies who just passed us <laughs> like we were standing still. Now, I still maintain it was because he was slowing me down. But we headed up and we went to Mount Stromlo. I mean, we just, we just are so blessed to live in this city that we live in with all these beautiful parks and beautiful scenery. I love this city. I love and so we'd made it up and we were starting down and as we, if, you've, if you've done the Stromlo track there is some technical sections, there's little curves, there's boulders at times and you've got to be careful because they mark out the runs, it's a bit like a ski field so you can take the green slope or you can take the, the double black diamond slope, in fact there's one that goes up the hill that's called the cardiac arrest, <laughs> cardiac arrest track, that's true. true story, it's what the name is. And I was thinking, uh, the point of telling that story was I was thinking as we were riding up and we were having a good time, we were just enjoying the beauty of of nature and and, um, enjoying just being outside. And there's a number of technical sections as you come down. There was a piece of advice that was given to me the very first time, and I used to be quite into mountain biking and doing quite a bit of it. And the advice was this, very simple advice, and it's a principle that applies in a number of different areas of life. But as you come into a curve, you never look into the curve, you always look through the curve. If you're coming into a series of obstacles, you never look into the obstacle, you always look through the obstacles. You've always got to lift your eyes and to look through where you're going to go, because otherwise the rock's there and you think, into the the rock, I'm not going to hit the rock, I'm not going to hit the rock, I'm not going to hit the rock, and what happens? You hit the rock. You head into the curve, you think, well, I'm not going to get stuck in the curve, I'm not going to get stuck in the curve, and what happens? You end up eating the dirt of the curve. Or like you did the first time many years ago, I went across this narrow technical section, and it was a a log that spanned a a little ravine. It wasn't particularly deep, it was a few feet deep, and I got halfway along. And what do you do when you're up high? What's your first natural response? You look down. And do you know where I ended up? I ended up down. I ended up in the ravine. So there is this principle in mountain biking as in life. You never look into the curve. You always look through the curve. You've always got to remember where you are going. And I say that for this reason. I think sometimes if you're anything like me, and I know you're not, praise God. But if you're anything like me, there are times where not only am I looking into the curve but I really enjoy looking into the curve. In fact, I just like to get in there and really wallow a bit in the midst of the dirt. If you think you're a good wallower, I'm sure I can outdo you in my wallowing. I wallow and I wallow and I allow things to affect and to change my perspective. I get distracted and not only then am I miserable, but I make sure everybody around me is as miserable as possible. I complain and I whinge and as I said, I'm sure nobody else is ever like that, ever. And I had one of those moments and I was whinging and complaining and Lord, why, why bother? Why didn't you just come and save the dogs? They're nice companions and you know, why bother saving us? We just mess up and we make mistakes and and the Lord just said to me in that moment, very gently and gracefully, he said, Andrew, how's the dirt tasting? How's the dirt tasting? How's it? Because the truth is, There is a glorious God who is demanding our attention. There is a call to look through anything, to see his purpose and plans, and particularly in a year where God God is really leading us into some things. He's saying, look through. Just look through. Keep on looking through. Do not be distracted. Do not be dismayed. Do not be disappointed. And I say that particularly to make one point. I was just seeking the Lord this, this past week. And I felt like the Lord, well, I felt like the Lord the, the Lord did. He gave me this dream, and I don't want to share the details of the dream because it was something personally for me. But in the midst of that dream, the Lord was challenging me on a few areas. But he said this, he said, there is at this particular moment, and his, his phrase was to me in my dream, I heard this very clearly, he said, there is a spirit of discouragement, a spirit of discouragement that the enemy is doing everything he can to discourage so that we would keep our focus into the curves, into the dirt. And where are we going to end up? We're going to end up wallowing in our own self-pity. And so I said, okay, Lord, was this, is this for me? And I feel like it was partly. I said, is this for us? I think it is partly. There's probably some of us who that applies to. But I felt like that for the church in general. Like there is this spirit of discouragement coming against the church. And I say that for this reason. I think we need to pray that rather than the enemy discouraging us, that God would encourage us. And that was the theme, that he would bring his encouragement, an infusion of courage, was one of the themes for this year. And courage specifically for for this purpose, for us to look not into but through the obstacles that are before us, to follow the path that he leads us into. So I just want to pray. And if this is for you, you can receive that. I won't ask for a show of hands to, to say I'm feeling discouraged. But if, if this is you, receive this prayer. If it's not, then pray with me because I feel like this is a moment just to really go after this infusion of courage to look past and look into. So let's pray. Just this moment. Lord, I just want to pray because you put this on my heart and come against, in the name of the Lord Jesus, any sense of discouragement that would distract your people from your purposes. And Lord, I pray that specifically for anyone in this room, that where there is discouragement, that you would bring an infusion of your courage that you would encourage hearts and encourage in a way that causes people to lift their eyes and to see again this glorious God and the path that you lay before them. But I pray in a broader sense too, Lord, I pray for an encouragement of your church in our city, in our nation, and even in other parts of the world, Lord, that there would be a breaking off of the sense of hopelessness, that there'd be breaking off a sense of this discouragement that would distract I thank you that this is a glorious hour. This is a time like no other to be alive and to be pursuing your purposes and plans in the midst of the nations. And Lord, I ask that nothing would hinder us in our pursuit of you. And everyone said, Amen. 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 So let's just pray. I have that sense for us to pray and seek the Lord for an infusion of courage to break off discouragement. We've got to move along. That's the first point. This psalm begins with this place of recognition, and there's many other things that would distract us. Time doesn't permit us to go into them, but there is a glorious God demanding our attention. And then I love this second stanza, the second scene that's described in this psalm. There's a people in response to their reverence. Who, who could ascend the hill of God? Who could stand in this holy place? And yet there's an invitation for a generation To come after God. Those who would seek Him. And there's two things that define their seeking. Number one, there are people who seek His face. That's what it says in verse 6. They seek His face and not His hands. I know it's a simple thought. I know we've probably all heard that before. But I want to ask us this question. Do we seek God? Because most of us would say, yep, we seek God. We're seeking people. We seek and we desire God. Do we seek God because he is attractive? Or do we seek God because what he has is attractive? See, we have to be careful because so often, we don't mean to do it, I think, oftentimes, but we reference our walk with God all in terms of what he's doing, what we want him to do. I want God to do this. I want God to do that. Seeking God for this. I'm pressing in for that. Now, I don't want to discourage you from pressing in for anything. That's not my heart at all. But, you know, if we're pursuing The gifts over the giver, that's nothing short of idolatry. We've got to check our motivation. Here's a saying I saw. It's a funny, humorous statement, but it's got some truth to it. It goes like this. If I had a dollar for every time a woman found me unattractive, pretty soon women would start to find me attractive. (laughs) I thought that was good. But there's some truth, isn't there? And so often, without even thinking about it, What people can do, what God can do, can very subtly take precedence over what He is. Is there a place in our seeking God, seeking Him just for Him? Not for what He can do. Not for anything He can provide, but because He is God and He's worthy. This is a generation who seek His face. You see, here's the question as well that I would pose to you. Now, what if, and I don't don't want to, as I said, I don't want to diminish your passion and your desire to go after what the Lord says that you're to go after. If you're pressing in for healing, if you're pressing in for breakthrough, I believe it's a year of breakthrough. I believe we're to pursue God for things. I'm not in any way trying to diminish that. But let me say this. What if healing wasn't the greatest gift, but in fact, instead, his presence was in the midst of pain? What if our strength and self-sufficiency wasn't the greatest gift, but his grace in the midst of our weakness? What if success and influence and prosperity wasn't the greatest gift, but his riches in the midst of our poverty? What if it's the loss and the struggles of life that give us the greatest reality of his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love? What if the greatest gift was in fact him all the time. I remember hearing a testimony of a guy, many of you would have at least heard of, his name's Brian Johnson, and he's a part of the the Bethel Music team. We sing a number of their songs in worship, but he was sharing about 2 years ago he went through what you'd probably describe as a nervous breakdown. Everything fell apart. He had anxiety issues, he had depression issues. He was in and out of mental hospital and he couldn't function. Everything in his life shut down for a period. And he, I mean, he shares in hindsight, he didn't know if he was going to come through it. He didn't know if he was going to spend the rest of his life in that condition. And by God's grace, he did eventually come out of that season. That season of where he had nothing left. Nothing left. And he made this statement in reflection. And I've been pondering upon this, but he said this. He said, Consider it a gift when all you have left is him. Consider it a gift when all you have left is him. If he was the only gift, would that be enough? And as I said, I say all of that to say there is a place for this seeking of God for who he is. When he's our everything, he will be our everything. But is he our everything or is he our something? So there's a second aspect to this. There's a seeking generation who seek Him for Him, for His face, not His hands. But there's also a seeking of God with reverence. It says He's holy. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to idols, doesn't worship. It's it's this passion to seek God. It's this awe and this reverence, this intention to pursue God with purpose. And I have a personal bugbear, and I know some of you do as well, but it's with this obsession that we have with our mobile phones. Not that there's anything wrong in and of themselves with mobile phones, unless they're not Apple iPhones. Anyway, let's move on. But we were at the movies um, the other week, and someone had blessed us with uh, some Denby Premium tickets to go, go see a particular film. I don't know if you've been to Denby Premium. It's the big lounges and it costs certainly more than a normal movie, and you order your food, and they bring in your food, and it's a lovely experience, but I could not get over the amount of time that people spent, and presumably you go to the movies, there's two seats next to each other, presumably they're not there just by themselves, they had someone sitting next to them, you go with a friend, or with a spouse, it's a date night, but literally, the amount of people that spent the entire evening, even through the movie, on their mobile phones, and then Bing! And I mean, you you pay all this money to come and sit on your phone. I just can't understand it. My wife said with frustration many times, she's a teacher, she goes into places and kids will be there all on their phones. And you want to take the phone and just slap them around the head. But we've become this people, I would call it for lack of a better word, irreverent. We are an irreverent people. And all of that to say we've got to be careful that our irreverence, because we are an irreverent society, doesn't infiltrate the church. And I would say so often it does. John Bevere tells this story, and I went and looked it up because I remembered it as I was preparing the message. I thought, oh, I'm going to use that illustration and refresh my memory with exactly what happened. So he tells this account. You may have heard of him, he's a, an international speaker. And he went to a national conference in Brazil. This is at least a decade ago, if not more. He was invited to be the keynote speaker and he'd done some preparation. They'd got all the churches together in Brazil. They'd gone over there. There was uh, a big who's who of Brazilian conferences, thousands of people in a stadium. And so they'd begun, they'd launched into worship and he said it was a fantastic worship team. The music was just incredible but he said he stood there in the midst of this stadium, thousands of people, the worship was going on. It was, all, it was all wonderful. And he said, and yet something was wrong. There was just not a sense of the Lord's presence at all. And so he said, he said God, what's, I, I don't understand it. Like, what's, what's going We've got a stadium. We've got filled with believers. We're here to, you know, proclaim the name of Jesus. I've got a great message here. The worship band's playing. What is it that we are missing why is it that you're not anywhere to be found in the building? And the Lord just prompted him and said, Look, John, have a look around. And so he had a look around. He looked up at the stands. He turned elsewhere. And he said, Everywhere I looked, it was like this. There was people that were having conversations. There was others who were on their phone, text messaging. He said, I saw someone who just popped off to get another bag of chips and come back like it was some football game. And he said, there was a stadium full of disinterested, disengaged people. They were there in presence, but there was no sense of reverence at all. So they got through the worship time, and this continued, and they introduced him as the keynote speaker. And he came up to the platform, and he said, I just physically couldn't say anything. I just stood there in silence. I didn't say hello. I didn't say it's great to be here. But he said, I just stood there. I stood there. I didn't know what to do. Just silence for minutes minutes and then eventually all attention was focused upon him and the Lord just gave him a few things to say and he said this to them he said you know if there had been this evening in this gathering as a Friday night gathering if there'd been a famous politician if your prime minister had walked through or even a famous soccer star because they're all soccer mad you know soccer people are like their idols if, you, if you'd had Bra- Brazil's most famous soccer player come in here, you, know, you would be waiting on their every movement. You'd be analyzing what they were wearing, their every action, their thought. You'd be hanging on every single word they said. And he said, and yet you are here in the presence of the living God, and none of you could care less. He said at that point there was just this spirit of repentance that fell upon that stadium It started off with a few people and they just began to weep in repentance and it spread and soon everybody was just weeping with repentance and the Lord said lead them in a prayer of repentance so he did he led them in a prayer of repentance. And then he said, this is the way he shares the story, he said, I've never seen anything before or other like this, but into that stadium at that moment, there was this sound, this loud sound of a rushing wind It just came. He said it was so loud that the people, the security guards on the outside who were just employed, they weren't part of the meeting, they came rushing in to see what was going on inside the stadium. And he said many, many people just saw fire throughout the auditorium throughout the room, and people were just filled with the power and presence of God. He said there was such an awesome reverence of God, I literally did not know what to do. I just waited in silence, thinking I don't want to do anything wrong here or I might lose my life. Waited a few moments and then said, I'll just hand it back over to you. I've got nothing else. I don't know what to do. What's the point of that story? There is this place of reverence that brings The response of God. And I feel like in this psalm, there's this eagerness as the king of glory. He's here. He wants to come in. There's there's no sense at all that he's, that that's his heart's desire, that the king of glory would come in. But he's waiting for a people, as he said. There's people who would be like Jacob, who would seek after him. And the moment they do, the moment that God is allowed to be God, he's put in that place of reverence comes and even this Jacob's an interesting story isn't it because it says such is the generation who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob some translations say this is the generation of Jacob's well what what's so special about Jacob well Jacob was the one if you remember his story who he hadn't lived a perfect life but he had this encounter he had this recognition in this moment he was seeking God and God was there and he saw God for who he is. And the moment he saw God, he hung on to him. He said, I am not leaving this place and I'm not letting you go. He sought after him in such an intentional way that the Lord eventually said all through the night, says that Jacob pursued God into such a place that the Lord finally responded and said, I'll bless you changed his name to Israel, and there was born a nation from that moment. So there is this place of reverence that demands a response, and that's the third theme. So we've seen this recognition of who God is. We've seen this reverence, this pursuit of God. And then, of course, there's wonderful stanza at the end from verse 7. The King of glory is coming in. I want us to, just to turn to two more passages of Scripture just because I believe there is a link both between reverence and the response and the power and presence of God, but also this sense of his desire and his delight, this king of glory who is longing to come and to be glorified in the midst of his people. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. You can go to many passages to see this link. I'll just take you to two. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Verse 43. So, of course, is the early church. The Holy Spirit has just fallen upon them. People are getting saved and baptized. It says, they being the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Now that word for awe there is the word for reverence. It's for awe, it's for wonder, it's for fear. And then what happens immediately? It says, awe came and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There is a link between awe, between reverence, between coming before God with the right attitude, and seeing His power and His presence released. Let's look at another one. Acts five eleven it says here in five verse eleven, and great fear came upon the whole church. Now that is exactly the same word. It's translated here fear, but it's exactly the same word, meaning awe reverence worship wonder putting God back into that place he deserves to be great fear came upon the whole church and it says and now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles to the extent if you read on that people gathered the sick into the streets just so Peter's shadow would pass over them that they might be healed not to say that there wasn't miracles elsewhere. But you can look at this pattern throughout Scripture that where God is put back in his rightful place, God can finally be God. Where there is this response of reverence like in this psalm, a generation who will seek God, God says, get ready because the King of glory is coming. He is coming. And if you look at this passage in Acts 5.11, know this is following the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Talking about letting God be God. I mean, tell me if you ever find a box for that story. What on earth? I could give you a dozen wonderful theological examples and good theories about what that was about, but there just is no box to put that in. There is this sense that God will be revered and glorified through us or in us, otherwise through us. And there is that sense of I believe that God is restoring reverence to the church and he's saying, either receive him in or get out of the way because his glory is coming. It's my prayer that it doesn't take us another Ananias and Sapphira to get there. God is serious about us being a people who come before him with holy fear. A people who can finally recognize the God that we worship. And out of that place of revelation, of recognition, we come with reverence. We come with a desire to seek him, holding him in the highest regard. Like Jacob, we will not let you go. And then you wait and see and watch with wonder for the King of glory to come in. We are in a season, I believe, where the Lord is saying it's time. It's time to just stop playing games. It's time to stop living with one foot in the world, one foot in the church. It is time. It's time for his glory to come. And he's looking for a people who will seek his heart, seek his face, seek after him. There is a higher calling. There is a higher calling. For us to live in recognition. To live in reverence. And to wonder at his response. Let's pray. Serena still here? You happy to come by Adam? we had a sense just at the. uh, The earlier service there was. Some who had to head away, but there was many people who just wanted to stay wanted to stay and I would encourage you. I know that we're all busy. We've all got places to go people to see important things to do. But I don't want any of us to leave without allowing the Lord. To do what he needs to do. And if you'd like to I did this in the earlier service but I just led whoever wanted to in a prayer of repentance. Just repentance for those times that I know that I've taken for granted His presence, that I've been flippant, even those times that I've been distracted by disappointment and discouragement. I've wallowed a little in the dirt. I've even enjoyed it rather than allowing my eyes to be captivated with the recognition and the revelation of who he is. That that might form not just the way that I come to church on a Sunday, but my entire life, coming with a single passion and desire. Desire to seek him and to know him and to see the King of glory come in. So Lord, I do again, I just want to repent, Lord, for myself, for any of us here. Have been irreverent in our pursuit of you. Lord, we've taken for granted your glorious name. We've fixed our eyes upon other things. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we turn to you again, this would be a moment of you coming and you lifting us to a higher place. A higher calling to see you, a higher calling to seek after you, and a higher calling to see your glory come. I pray that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.